Chapters 33 and 34 of Love's Bitterest Cup. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 33. A Clue. The one maid of all work came in and asked the young lady if she would not like to go to a room and wash her face and hands. Wynnette decidedly would like it and said so. The girl was a fresh, wholesome-looking English lass with rosy cheeks and rippling red hair. She wore a dark blue dress of some cheap woolen material, with a white apron and white collar. She led the young lady out into the hall again, and up a flight of broad stone steps to an upper hall, and thence into a front bedchamber, immediately over the parlor. Here again were the whitewashed walls, clean bare floor, the broad white-shaded window, the open fireplace filled with evergreens, the polished wooden chairs ranged along the walls, and all the dainty neatness of the room below. There were, besides, a white-curtained bed, with a strip of carpet on each side of it, a white-draped dressing-table with an oval glass, and a white-covered washstand with white china basin and ewer. In a word, it was a pure, fresh, dainty, and fragrant white room. "'Oh, what a nice place! Oh, how I should like to stay here to-night instead of going further!' exclaimed Wynnette, appreciatively. The girl made no reply, but began to lay out towels on the washstand, and to pour water from the ewer into the basin. "'This is a very lonesome country, though, isn't it?' inquired Wynnette, who was bound to talk. "'There's not many gentry, ma'am. There be mill-hands and pitmen mostly about here,' said the girl. "'Mill-hands and pitmen. I saw no mills nor mines, either, as we drove along.' "'No, ma'am, but they be'n't far off. The hills do hide them just about here, but you might seen the high chimneys.' I mean, the tops of them and the smoke. Are they pitmen down there in the bar-room? In the tap-room? Yes, ma'am, mill-hands and farm-hands, too. They do come in at this hour for their beer and bacco. Do you have many more customers besides these men? Not every day, ma'am, but we have the farmers on their way to Middlemore Market stop here, and, and the gentry coming and going betwixt the station and Fell Hall, or Middlemore Court, or Anglewood Manor, ma'am. How far is Anglewood Manor from this? About five miles, ma'am. Five? Why, I thought it wasn't more than four. The coachman told us it was only six from the station, and we have come, too. That was Anglewood Village, I reckon, ma'am. That is only four miles from here. But Anglewood Manor is a short mile beyond that. Ah, who keeps this inn? There is no name on the sign. No, ma'am. It's to White Coo. It's allers have been to White Coo, ma'am. But who keeps it? persisted inquisitive Wynnette. Ooh, me mother keeps it, ever since feyther deed, ma'am. Mother tends bar her sen, and Jonah waits and waters horses, and cleans boots and does odd jobs, and I be chambermaid. Ah, and who is Jonah? Me brother. Ah, and so your mother, your brother, and yourself do all the work and run the hotel? Yes, ma'am, it would no pay us else, replied the maid of the inn, who seemed to be as much inclined to be communicative as Wynnette was to be inquisitive. Oh, well, it is lucky that you are all able to do so. But you have not told me your name yet. Mine be Hetty Kirby, ma'am. Brother Jonah's be Jonah, and mother's be the widow Kirby, definitely replied the girl. Kirby? Oh, why, tell me, did you ever have a relation named John Kirby go to America once upon a time? Yes, ma'am, a long time ago, before I can remember. Me uncle John Kirby, me father's youngest brother, went there and never come back. Oh, and is your grandfather living? The maid of the inn stared. What was all this to the young lady? 
Wynnette interpreted her look and explained. "'Because if he is living, I have got a letter and a bundle for him from his son in New York.' "'Oh, law! Have you, though, ma'am? Look at that new! What wonders in this world! The grandfather is living, ma'am, but not in Morton. He be lately come to dwell with his son Job, me uncle Job, who be sexton at Anglewood Church.' "'Sexton at Anglewood Church. Is your uncle Sexton at Anglewood Church? And does your grandfather, old Mr. Kirby, live with him?' The maid of the inn stared again. Why should this strange young lady take so much interest in the Kirbys? Again, Wynnette interpreted her look and explained. "'Because if your grandfather does live there, it will save us a journey to Morton, as we are going to Anglewood, and can give him the letter and parcel without turning out of our way,' she said." but she was also thinking that if this old Kirby, to whom she was bringing letters and presents from his son in America, was the father of the sexton at Anglewood Church, an inmate of his cottage, and probably assistant in his work, these circumstances might greatly facilitate their admission into vaults and mausoleums, which the party had come to see, but which might otherwise have been closed to them. "'Oh, ma'am,' said Hetty, "'would you mind letting Mother see the letter and parcel?' "'No, certainly not.' but I have no right to let her open either of them, you know. She shan't, ma'am, but it will do the mother good to see the outside in em. And a Sunday, when she goes to church, she can see the grandfather, and get to read to letter. And there be to bell, ma'am. And we mun go doon to tea. Wynnette was ready and went downstairs, attended by the girl. A dainty and delicious repast was spread upon the table. Tea, whose rich aroma filled the room and proved its excellence. Muffins, Sally Lunds, biscuits, buttered toast, rich milk, cream and butter, fried chicken, poached eggs, sliced tongue and ham, radishes, pepper grass, cheese, marmalade, jelly, pound cake, and plum cake. Wynnette's eyes danced as she saw the feast. It is as good as a St. Mary's County spread, and I couldn't say more for it if I were to talk all day, she exclaimed, as she took her place at the head of the table to pour out the tea. Mr. Force asked a blessing, just as he would have done if he had been at home, and then the three hungry travelers fell to. "'Father,' said Wynnette, when she had poured out the tea, which Hetty began to hand around, "'do you know the widow Kirby who keeps this hotel?' "'In, my dear, in,' amended the squire. "'I am so happy to find myself in an old-fashioned inn that I protest against it being insulted with the name of hotel.' "'All right, squire,' said Wynnette. "'A sweet by any other smell would name as rose.' or words to that effect. The landlady of this hostelry, I should say tavern, I mean inn, the landlady of this inn is the widow Kirby, sister-in-law to the baggage-master who took care of Joshua, and from whom we brought the letter and parcel, you know. And this young person is his niece, and the man who drove us here is his nephew, and his brother is sexton at Anglewood Church, and his father lives there. Now, what do you think of that? We knew from the baggage-master that the Kirbys lived in Lancashire, so we need not be surprised to find them here. But, Papa, Lancashire is a large place. My love, it has been said that the habitable globe is but a small place, and we are always sure to meet some of the same people everywhere. Now the widow wants to see the letter and the parcel, the outside of them, I mean. Well, there is no objection, said the squire, and he made a move to reach his valise. But Lee hastily anticipated him and brought it. The kind-hearted squire unlocked the case, found the letter and the parcel, and gave them into the hands of the young waitress. "'Ooh, thank ye, sir. Thank ye, ma'am. Thank ye,' she said, and continued to say, bobbing curtsies, and turning over and staring at the letter and the parcel as she took them out of the room. "'Wynnette, my dear, you find out everything, but you have missed your vocation. 
You ought to have been a newspaper correspondent or a detective. I know it, Papa, I know it, exclaimed the girl, with a very demonstrative sigh. And that's the complaint with most of us. We're nearly all out of place, and therefore in pain like dislocated limbs. And that's what's the matter with humanity. Almost all its members are put out of joint. The rich glow of the summer sunset was slowly fading from the west. Lights were brought in by the factotum, Jonah, who placed two on the tea-table, and then proceeded to light the two that stood upon the mantelpiece. Having done this, the man stood waiting orders. "'Have you put up the carriage?' inquired Mr. Force. "'Na, Meister, the carriage be waiting. "'Well, then, you may just as well put it up. "'It is growing dark, and I do not feel like crossing the moor at this time of night. "'We will stay here, if you can let us have bedrooms.' "'Surely, Meister, we have rooms enough. "'I'll call Hetty.' The chambermaid was called, and bringing the letter and parcel, still unopened, and her mother's duty and thanks to the gentlefolks for letting her see the outside of them. Hetty, on being interviewed on the subject of sleeping accommodations, declared in effect that the white cow could provide comfortable quarters for the whole party, for if the two gentlemen would share the double-bedded chamber over the tap-room, the young lady could have the large single-bedded chamber over the parlor. "'That will be perfectly lovely,' I did long to sleep in that very room, at least for one night, said Wynnette, without waiting for anyone else to speak. All right, then, that will do. We will stay. Ailey, said the squire, turning to his young companion. Certainly, uncle. The half of a large bedded chamber is ample space for one used to a hammock, replied Lee. So it was settled, and as the travelers were fatigued, they retired early. CHAPTER Thirty Four: ANGLEWOOD MANOR Early the next morning our three travellers were astir. They met in the neat parlour, where the air was delicious with a fragrance of fresh white, pink, and blue hyacinths that filled the flower-pots in the broad window. They sat around the table, on which was arranged a breakfast that quite equalled in excellence the tea of the evening before. Jonah waited on the party. "'Is that elegant and commodious equipage which brought us here yesterday the best thing in the way of a carriage that the white cow can turn out?' inquired Mr. Force, as he sipped his coffee." "'Beg pardon, maister,' said the man, with a puzzled look. "'Can't you trot out a better trap than that old hurdle on wheels which jolted us from the railway station yesterday?' demanded Wynnette. "'Beg pardon, ma'am,' said the man, with a bewildered look. "'We wish to know if you have not a better carriage than the one in which we came here,' Lee tried to explain. "'No, nah, maister, to white co have na much demand for em. To gentry do most come and go in their own.' and send to same for, or call to friends in visiting, the man replied, in a tone of apology. Very well. Have the cart at the door as soon as it can be brought here, and bring me my bill. Yes, Meister. They all got up from the table. Papa, said Wynnette, who was too well inclined to take the initiative in most matters. Papa, I think if we can get our business done at the manor today, we had better come back here to take supper and to sleep. It seems to me that it would be much nicer than to stop at Angleton." "'Wait until you see Angleton before you decide, my dear. "'You may find the Anglesia Arms as attractive as us inn,' replied the squire, "'who was drawing on his railway duster. "'A needless operation, since there was no more dust on the moor "'than could have been found on the sea.' "'The Anglesia Arms, Papa? No, thank you. "'The name is enough for me. "'I would rather sit in the old cart all day and eat bread and cheese, "'and sleep in the cart all night, gypsy fashion, "'than take rest or refreshment at the Anglesia Arms,' exclaimed Wynnette. "'But, my dear, you are unjust. "'The inn has nothing to do with the man, "'beyond the accident of having been on the land "'of his ancestors centuries ago, "'and handed down the name from generation to generation. 
"'Can't help it, Papa. I should feel disgraced. "'There, if I were to find myself by any accident under the roof of the Anglesia Arms.' "'Whew! Poor old inn!' whistled Mr. Force. "'Oh, no doubt he ought to have lectured his willful little daughter, but he did not. "'He was a child spoiler, a chick-pecked Papa.' "'By this time they were ready to start. "'Jonah brought the bill. Mr. Force paid it and gave the waiter half a crown. "'Wynnette pulled his sleeve and whispered, "'Papa, give me half a sov to tip the chambermaid. "'It's the regular thing, you know.' I mean, Papa dear, that it is usual for ladies to offer some such modest recognition of such young person's service. What, my dear, have you no money? inquired her father, looking at her in some surprise. Oh, sir, you see me here, a most poor woman, though a queen, sighed Wynnette, in a very humble air, as she held out her open hand. The squire poured into her palm some loose silver and one piece of gold, the whole not amounting to so much as five dollars. Wynnette thanked him and skipped out of the parlor to find Hetty. She found her waiting just outside the door. Hetty was a very good girl in her way, but she profited by the traditions of her class, and generally was to be found waiting when ladies were leaving the inn. Wynnette pressed the half-sovereign into the hand of the girl. Wynnette was a generous and extravagant little wretch, without the slightest idea of the value of money, and therefore likely, in some opinions, to come to poverty. This half-sovereign was about four times as much as the maid ever got from the richest of the inn's guests, and she curtsied about four times as often in return. Small favors gratefully acknowledged, large ones in proportion, seemed to be her just and simple rule. "'Come, Wynnette, come, my dear,' called her father, who was already in the hall waiting for her. In another minute the whole party were in the dilapidated carryall, and the driver turned the horse's head eastward into an almost invisible roadway over the moor. It was a splendid June morning. The sky was of a deep, clear sapphire blue, so seldom seen, even on the sunniest days in England. The moor took a darker shade of color from the sky, and the heather with which it was thickly overgrown seemed of a deep, intense green. The ground rolled in hills and dales, gradually rising higher and higher toward the range of mountains on the eastern horizon, where the highest ridges were capped with soft, snow-white clouds. As the sun rose higher, these clouds— as well as the mountain-sides, became tinted with the most delicate and beautiful hues of rose, azure, emerald, and gold, melting into each other and forming the loveliest varieties of color, light, and shade. Yet, in the vast solitude of the moor, no human being or human dwelling was to be seen. The first sign of habitation was a thin spire which seemed to rise in mid-distance before them. "'What is that?' inquired Mr. Force of the driver. "'That, maester, be the steeple of old Anglewood Church.' "'Are we so near the manor, then?' "'Naw, sir. It be better in three moles off yet. "'You would naw see it, only for the air is so clear the day.' Wynnette craned her neck to look forward, but there was nothing to be seen but the thin spire, as if drawn with pen and ink from the dark blue heath to the deep blue sky. As they went on, the spire became a steeple, and the steeple a tower, and the tower a church. As yet nothing but the church, darkly outlined against the background of hills, was visible.' They were now on the top of one of the rolling hills, and could see it clearly. "'Is that church in the village of Angleton, or in the manor of Anglewood?' inquired Mr. Force of the driver. "'It be on to manor, maester. The village it be nearer to us, but bein' into hollow you can't see it yet.' Ah! They went down the hill and through the hollow, came up the other side of another higher hill, and then looked down on the village of Angleton in the vale at its foot. On the top of the next hill stood the old church of Anglewood in full view." The driver stopped his horse while they looked at the village in the vale, and the church on the hill beyond. 
Will I drive to the Anglesia Arms, Maester? inquired the driver, as he set his horse in motion again. No, replied the squire, in deference to Wynnette. He had won his spurs elsewhere, no doubt, but the chick-packed papa was a little afraid of his baby. No, but I want to stop at the village for a few minutes. Is there a newspaper published at Angleton? Yes, sir, to Angleton Wertiser, it be, replied the man. Very well, then, drive to the office of that paper. Yes, maester. They were now descending a steep road between low stone walls, leading down into the main street of the village and past the one public house, the one general store, the doctor's office and surgery, the lawyer's office, and finally the printing and publishing office of the Angleton Advertiser. It was a two-storied stone building, evidently a dwelling house as well as a printing office, for there were two doors, one apparently a private door, leading into a narrow hall, the other a public door, broad and rough, and leading into the business rooms. Besides, the upper windows were hung with Norfolk lace curtains and adorned with pots of geraniums, while the lower windows were shaded with dust and draped with cobwebs, and sustained above them the broad signboard, Angleton Advertiser. When the carriage drew up before this building, the three travelers alighted and went in. The driver of the vehicle remained in his seat in charge. The party of three found themselves in a very dingy room, with a counter on the right hand, at the nearest end of which a man stood writing at a desk. At the furthest end, a boy stood folding and wrapping papers. "'Is this the office of the Angleton Advertiser?' needlessly inquired Mr. Force of the gentleman behind the desk. "'It is. What can I have the pleasure of doing for you, sir?' inquired the latter. "'You are the proprietor?' half asserted, half inquired the squire. "'Proprietor, editor, printer, and publisher,' answered the man, reaching behind him and taking from a shelf a copy of his paper, which he offered to his visitor, saying, "'Out today, sir, and there's my name.' Ah, said Mr. Force, spreading the paper before him, and looking first at the prospectus for the name of his new acquaintance. Can I be of any service to you, sir? inquired the proprietor. Well, Mr. Purdy, I would like to have a few minutes' talk with you, if you are not too busy. I am directing papers for the mail, but I am not pressed for time, as the mail does not go until tonight. Thank you, said the squire, as a mere form, for there did not appear to be any particular cause for gratitude and he drew from his breast pocket a certain copy of the Angleton Advertiser, and handed it to the man, saying again, "'Thank you, Mr. Purdy. My name is Force. I only wish to ask you, and I hope without offense, what is the meaning of the obituary notice of a living man that is published in the first column of this paper?' Purdy took the paper in a slow and dazed manner, and looked at the column which Mr. Force pointed out to him. And as he looked, he stared and stared, "'I—I I don't understand,' he said at last, looking from the paper up to the face of his strange visitor. "'Neither do I understand, Mr. Purdy. But if we put our heads together, perhaps we may be able to do so,' replied Abel Force. The printer turned the paper over and over, in and out, up and down, and lastly back to the front page, and then he stared at the obituary notice of his landlord. "'What do you make of it?' inquired Abel Force. "'I can't make anything of it.' but I think it will make a lunatic of me. This is certainly my paper. I know my paper as well as I know my children. This is certainly my paper, though it is an old one. And this is the obituary notice of Colonel Anglesia, who was alive and well at that very time, and is so at this present, as I think. How do you account for that? I can't account for it. If I weren't a sound man, and a sober man, and a wide-awake one, I should think I was drunk, or dreaming, or deranged. It is quite beyond me, Mr. Force." This is my paper, I see it and know it, and this is an obituary notice of a living man that I never put in there. 
I see and know that as well. But how to reconcile these two contradictory facts I don't know. How did you come by that paper, if you please? It was sent to me by mail. Well, well, well. Have you a file of the Angleton Advertiser? Of course I have, sir. Let us look at it, then, and compare this paper with the paper of that same date on the file. Why, that is a good idea, and I shall only have to look at the copy of August 20th in last year's file. I'll do it at once. The editor turned and took down a roller full of papers from the two wooden pins on the wall behind him, and laid it upon the counter and began to turn over the sheets. Here it is, exclaimed Purdy, pulling out a paper and spreading it out on the counter. August 20th, and appears to be a facsimile of the one you brought here, sir. Now let us lay them on the board side by side and compare them. He took the file and hung it up again on the wall to make room on the counter. Then he spread out the two papers side by side with their first pages uppermost. As he did so, the boy who had been folding and wrapping papers at the other end of the counter left his work and crept toward the two men. Oh, see this, exclaimed the proprietor, see this. The two papers are facsimile in every letter and line, except in two places. See this. The first column on the first page of the paper from the file is occupied by the report of an agricultural fair at Middlemore, and the same column in the same edition of the paper in the copy you brought is filled with the obituary of Colonel Anglesia. And here, in the list of deaths on another page, the first paragraph in this paper from the file is a notice of the death of the Reverend Mr. Orton, our old vicar, and in the copy of the same paper that you brought me the same space is taken up with the notice of the death of Colonel Anglesia. This is a very great mystery. Perhaps if you could recall all the incidents of the day on which this paper was issued, we might come to some solution of the problem, suggested Mr. Force. I don't know that I could, replied Purdy. Father, said the boy, father, I remember something queer about that very day. I do. End of chapter 34